Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm so excited to welcome John Monkley. Now, John wears two hats. By day, digital services lead at WSP and also as co-founder at Zero a collaborative industry working group made up of thousands of members from over 60 countries around the world that all come together to work collaboratively to bring the planet closer to achieving net zero. Now, John needs no introduction because I'm sure you've seen all of his content online and you've seen him lead stages at Digital Construction Week and elsewhere. So I'll let John introduce himself properly. But in the meantime, if you like this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify as it helps promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, without further ado, let's welcome John. So I just put my first hat on. I actually just gestured to the camera, putting a hat on there if anyone was interested. So my name is Jonathan Monkley. I'm an architect. I My day job is I lead the digital services team in WSP Property and Buildings. We kind of focus on digital advisory BIM and information management, jumping around into things like smart, but I'm here today, change his hat on the camera, uh, as co-founder of an industry community called Zero. I think Jack Jack has heard of Zero, but I'm going to give uh, a bit more detail about it. So Zero started as a WhatsApp group of four people, four to nine people, I can't remember how many, during lockdown, a collection of industry professionals who wanted to kind of tackle and look at embodied carbon as a topic. From that point, it's gone from a small WhatsApp group to 3,000-ish members from 60 countries, from over 34 different professions now, Jack, from all over the industry, from CEO to graduate to head of sustainability to digital leads to BRIAM consultants and uh, university lecturers and everyone in between. It's real diverse lawyers. We've got some lawyers in there consultants, everybody, architects, engineers, everyone in between. Very, very diverse community of construction professionals all focused on wanting to improve construction in a, in a for the better with a key focus on embodied carbon. We very quickly put a, a wrap around embodied carbon because it's such a huge challenge. It's something like 12% of emissions annually across the globe from an energy consumption perspective. And since then, we've been producing we produced an online Wikipedia-type solution called the Zero Playbook, which is how to or, or a starting point to start the conversation on how to lower carbon on projects, running events, running workshops, conferences, and everything in between, really. You have such a prominent voice within the industry. And, and this conversation has been such a long time coming. And because of that, I was really trying to work out what the best way to sort of spend this time together would be. And for me, it's very conveniently, we've got quite a prominent news item at the sort of front of our minds at the minute being the UK's recent tweaks and changes to their, their net zero targets that sort of came out a matter of days ago. So I think, I think it's probably quite an important topic for us to speak about, right? It's a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? It's a starting point, yeah. to be honest. Well, it's, I think the interesting, the interesting thing is it's a little bit embarrassing at a global scale from the UK's perspective. I, I don't think the UK can shift the needle emissions-wise by the making the decision it's going to make, but it just, I think politically and economically, it's just bad decisions. And we all know that, we all know why he's done it. I think the majority of people, as soon as they heard that, they knew exactly why he was doing it. But 
I think on a global scale, it makes us look a little bit silly as a starting point. I mean, let's pick up the the EV decision. I feel very sorry. So that's it. So what was the point? He's pushed. Uh, so it's a it's a five year delay in the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles, um, which is, I mean, for me, it's a bit of an interesting one because. I think already we're well aware of research that has already estimated that the cost of a typical new electric vehicle is expected to be the same cost as buying a new petrol vehicle by about 2030. So it, it's kind of moving a target that doesn't really need to happen because we're already pushing towards EVs. The percentage of EVs in the market is already quite high at the minute. We're seeing some really great improvements around EV infrastructure. Obviously, Tesla being the sort of the, the pioneers in, in electric vehicles and in the UK and US recently announcing that they're opening up the U, their EV infrastructure to non-Tesla vehicles. So we're really getting quite a quite a, a decent decent way there, aren't we? Well, I am a I am an EV user. I am a I'm an EV owner, so I fully get the the concept behind it. And I'm not a Tesla driver. Uh, suppose I remember the f- I have attempted to use the UK open Tesla grid and didn't work, which is another story. Okay. But I think the biggest issue I would see in the fact that they pushed pushed that that target back is the it it needs the UK needs billions and billions of private investment to make the EV grid work, from gigafactories to the general external infrastructure. And that deadline was driving the investment at a really really hot pace. And what 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 I think that date change has done will make everyone kind of step back and think actually should we should I be building a gigafactory now because that, that they've taken the foot off the gas and all the projects that were potentially in the pipelines looking at a few within within my my day job like they might get changed because the date's moved like simple as that like even the idea of having charges all over the place as as someone who doesn't do a huge amount of driving hence EVs kind of work for me the times i have driven around it's it, it initially when you start doing it looking for supercharges is quite scary it's also very expensive interestingly now it's very it's, i think for the first time ever i charged my car on a on a motorway a few weeks ago and it was more expensive per mile than petrol which was quite an interesting shock wow. uh, yeah yeah and- so that's happening <laughs> And I think the I think the point around the incentives and attracting private sector investment to the marketplace is a really important one because I think already the US versus UK dynamic is already quite out of sync, obviously because of the size and the amount of capital flowing. But the US has really been quite a pioneer on the global stage with their US Inflation Reduction Act. So. I mean, we're sort of around sort of one year into that at the minute. And so far over the last 12 months, we've seen $278 billion in new private sector investments. So I think that's a really important fact because the US government put up a huge amount of money. Sort of, I think it's closer, it's edging towards, well, by 2030, it'll be around $1 trillion in public sector money being put up. But then what that's then enabled is a lot of private sector investments come into the mix. And I think that's something that when you look at the UK, we're really falling behind on. And it needs, we need the policy, but also we need the right incentives. And we need to show that we're open for, open for business, right? Well, we, the, we could talk about the current elephant in the room on public sector investment, which is HS2. Might not be the correct topic for the day, but it's an interesting discussion point. 
I think that the, the signals it gives out is just that the UK is not willing to make changes. But I'm I'm still fully convinced it's a political move and it's not one for what they want what he actually what the UK actually wants to see from a policy perspective. So whether it'll change back or things will shift. I always I was I was I was absolutely convinced when I first saw that dead, that that target that it wasn't going to happen. I thought, how on earth can we even get anywhere near that? Like it's can it's an insane thing to say we're going to get rid of all this even the love of the petrol car for the human. And I still think the the EV debate is up for grabs from an embodied carbon versus precious metals versus should I buy a 1980s Ford Escort to have a lower impact on the planet. Like The EV for me and the idea of the EV still doesn't fundamentally address the issues that we need to address in cities is you need to get rid of the need for a car from a public transport perspective, like ultimately, I think the way you wrap up an EV is it localize it lowers local emissions. It can move the emissions to somewhere else if it's from a coal grid or non, and it's not a green grid. But there's still there's still eighty ninety thousand pound EVs being sat on people's drives. There's still a lot of precious metals in there, a lot of destruction in third world countries and that kind of stuff. So that I would rather than focus on public infrastructure than than moving deadlines around and moving beans around a plate saying oh we'll move this to there and that to there like i, li- I live south of manchester and the trains are terrible like absolutely shocking like i live nine miles from uh my working office and it is hard work getting there if it was london i'll be there in 15 minutes <laughs> it would probably work whereas every day i spin the lottery so that, that i would i would like them to see focus more on on that than pushing those beans around and i've probably gone down a bit of rabbit hole there so you might want to cut some of this out <laughs> No, no, absolutely. I think it's a really important point. And the precious metals too, because there are so many natural resources, really valuable natural resources that go into an EV, lithium, et cetera, going into the battery, cobalt. And we've seen over the last sort of few months, actually, the market value of Tesla's has has dramatically decreased. So in the US, the US figures, I can't remember the exact ones, but sort of circa $95,000 for a, a Model Y, and that's now gone down to about sort of like $55,000 for a matter of years. So the cars are depreciating really, really rapidly. And because of the tendency for EVs to come to market through financing, which is very popular in the US, but also sort of EV car lease and work car schemes in the UK, it means that actually owners of EV vehicles or sort of lease holders of EV vehicles are increasingly incentivized to get rid of their EVs after a three, four year period, which means yep. that there'll be a huge amount of EVs just drifting around, floating around that are not wanted. And when you take into account the embodied carbon of that car, it's not going to be any better than if you, that person had been driving around a sports car for a couple of years. So it's a really quite a problem that we've now found ourselves with. Well, this I was in fact when we spoke the other night, Jack, there was a guy joined me and he went into this and he he dug into the he was a very he was works for the Hook Group, he leads their sustainability team in the Hook Group, and he was considering an EV and he dug into the whole supply chain piece around them and the life cycle piece of an EV and decided against it. <clears throat> he said for his personal life cost reduction, so no petrol, et cetera, et cetera. It was great, but the whole end-to-end piece, he just couldn't back the precious metal mining concept and then the end-of-life thing, he just couldn't get his head around it and he didn't see the business case 
for the planet, interestingly, is the way he put it. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. the business case for him. It was the business case for the planet. Um, so I think it's a really interesting challenge that will continue to be debated. Hopefully, you would hope, you would hope, again, private sector investment, the technology would follow the cars because there's going to be a huge market there for reconditioning batteries and reconditioning EVs into something new and moving moving them around into the new cars. That has to be the only way it's going to be feasible, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, know, you, you spend a lot of your sort of days thinking about buildings, smart buildings, and sort of what the future of buildings looks like. You, you're an architect by education. So let, let's maybe sort of dive into the, the changes around building energy efficiencies. So fossil fuel boilers, for example. So the government set out an exemption to phase out fossil fuel boilers by 2035. So this was originally 2026. So quite a delay to that and it applies to about a fifth of of all homes and they've also scrapped policies that would force landlords to upgrade energy efficiency in their homes so i guess maybe to sort of set the scene for listeners here so about 75 percent of buildings emissions come from residential buildings here in the uk so a quite prominent challenge What, what do you think about that I think it starts to unpeel the wrapper that is generally the UK housing sector, in all honesty. It's it's an absolute shame that they're considering it. There's probably the, the research is quite complex. You can just, I know there's a lot of arguments around like insulating buildings doesn't make a difference when you start to project it. I don't necessarily believe that. Like if your house doesn't get cold, why would you put the heating on? But the the research is a bit woolly in that space. But the idea of just backpedaling on it is just silly because our housing stock is a state. I, I'm ashamed that the state, the country is from a housing perspective for the next generation and the generation after that, like they're not going to be able to afford decent homes. They will be buying rickety, knackered things from the, the last generation for ridiculous prices because we are just not building enough homes that are, are of a good quality. And this is just another step back, like the ba- basic insulation, decent quality finishes, using systems that are inefficient. We're just not doing it. And it's, any kind of step back from a legislation perspective is a huge step back for the UK. But there's there's, there's bigger fundamental problems in our housing stock than than the heating systems, like getting them built and that, so they're not rubbish. So I, I live in a new build estate. And one of the interesting things that I saw happen was the road outside of my estate get dug up four times in 12 months. And the fourth time I was like, I'm going to go and ask these why they're digging it up. And the answer each time was, we need to check what's there. Like, so they need to check what's there. It's like, right. So this is a new build estate that they've just laid this stuff and that to dig the road up to check what's there. And I was like, right, well, that's a waste of cash. So I thought, right, that's a waste of cash. So I, being in the industry, I dug into that a little bit more and I spoke to a few people who worked at that builder and it turned out they just price in those mistakes and pass it on to the, they were like, oh yeah, we just allow for this this kind of ridiculous collection of rework we need to do on new build estates. But we'll just pass that on to the like the buyers. And I was sat there thinking, that's just wrong. But they can get away with it because people need homes and they just squeeze the amount of the building so the prices go up and then they pass it on to the the buyers. Which is just and I was sat there thinking, that is an actual joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. It is. And there, there, there's so much wrong with the the house building industry at the minute. I mean, fortunately, the the bill that came in a couple of weeks ago now to relax some of the environmental requirements from house builders to then accelerate house builders 
progress in, in meeting house building targets in the UK. That bill will turn down. So I think that's uh, that, that was a good positive step, but there's just so much that we need to address. And I think when you look places like Germany, where they've got a large amount of, of renters in the marketplace, there's a really high threshold for landlords to protect their residents. And you look at some of the innovation that's happening in the prop tech sector around sort of heating and cooling of houses, around sort of insulation, around energy efficiency. There is quite a disparate mix between the two. I mean, what you would like to see is a pointy carrot, I think, from the government. And that's how I think, well, this will probably tie in nicely to the next, the next discussion point of of the business case and the return on investment, like the idea of the pointy carrot, I think works quite well in construction. In in the built environment, we talk about climate and energy reduction and waste reduction. Um, putting my zero hat on, the the lowest hanging fruit from a, a carbon perspective is construction waste, like at a super basic level. So two statistics, 37% of all landfill every year in the UK or Great, I think Great Britain comes from construction sites. It's just waste, just like errors and mistakes. And then con- the average contract in the UK, 12% of that cost is allowed for in rework and errors on site. Again, carbon, energy. So that the business case, get rid of rework, you're going to make a lot more money or become a lot more competitive and win more work. I think the the worst piece, there's, there's, there's many ways you can pick that apart, but they're the kind of things we should be trying to tackle as a starting point. Like you don't need to go ridiculously complex and start looking at interconnected digital twins of cities, which is something I'm really excited about and passionate about. But there are so many easy things we could do first to improve the way we deliver things. Like our industry tends to something that I think our industry is bad at is getting really excited about the next shiny thing. And then really focusing on that and not focusing on the fundamentals. And it's, it's, you, you're, you're seen sometimes as not cool anymore. If you're not looking at the next cool thing, everyone's talking about AI. AI is going to fix the world. Every AI is going to fix eight, six to eight months' time. AI will be heading its way into the trough of disillusionment. And the next shiny thing will have appeared. And who knows what that'll be? I don't know. It'll be hardcore AI. But the idea of just really focusing on some basics, I think, would significantly improve the the industry that we sit within. Like that, the, the statistic of thirty seven percent of landfill being from construction sites, like that's that's a lot. Like we should be able to improve that, and then twelve percent of cost on site being down to rework. Another final statistic on that: there's six hundred billion dollars every year spent globally on construction rework. So the economic opportunity for the businesses trying to avoid that rework is fairly big. What, what do you think that rework is due to? <laughs> Ooh, I think there's multiple levels to that. Um, I've generally been involved in Reba stage one to or north to four consultants or f- from blank sheet of paper to kind of contractor on board and sometimes work through to completion, but generally Reba stage north to four. And it tends to be, I, I think a lot of it is it's priced in. It's a starting point, but also the way we procure consultants' designs. Like I graduated in 2008, which saw the collapse of the entire architectural industry, just about. And I don't think they've recovered from that. They quite often, at concept stage, it starts, the architects work, taking vertical assets, not linear assets, which aren't going at HS2. 
but taking like a vertical asset, the architects are desperate for work, so they do concepts for free at ultra low cost, and they want they they want to help their clients with opportunities, so they do low cost concepts. They then start to build in the design errors because they're doing them cheaply because the clients won't pay them. They then win the contract. They've already built in some design errors, but they continue running because the fees rubbish. That then gets built into the design through the the life cycle. The same with various other types of consultants. They're on ultra low fees. They want to get to the next stage, so they get paid. And it kind of tickles down into the point of where it gets to the site. Then they find the area. It's like, oh, crap, we've got to fix that. And I think that's a very common process. Doing, doing quite a bit of work in fire stopping compliance. And that's just so common that it's just kicked. They want to kick it to the next consultant um, because they just want to get paid. And that comes down to the way people are measured. They've either got a small fee or they want to get the fee and an invoice to move on to the next. So there's more, there's probably more to it than that, but that is a high level. It's kind of like we start wrong and then don't improve it until the point that it gets to site and there's a problem. It's, it's an interesting one. And I guess where I come to this conversation from is less the building space and more a, a capital infrastructure side of things. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about big, heavy challenges within the water sector. And, and also a lot of conversations within sort of wide utility space, such as energy, et cetera. And I think a lot of the sector recognize it's a rework challenge and just how much time is lost on a day-to-day -day basis from duplicated effort, from teams not working together, from having to hand over between multiple subcontractors and contractors not working together effectively. And, but I think there is a sort of big push at the minute for asset owners, aka clients, to adopt more of a sort of an intelligent client persona where mm. they ramp up the level of control over that full end-to-end -end sort of, I guess, value chain or asset lifecycle process. Interestingly, we've also seen examples of many asset owners taking design phases from stage zero up to stage three circa in-house and doing the detailed design in-house and then passing that, de that, that detailed design onto contractors and then say, hey, build it. We designed it, you build it. So it's a really interesting shift to how it's traditionally been done. Naturally, mm -hmm. I think there's sort of pros and cons to that. But I think it's hopefully will sort of improve the efficiency of, of how ultimately assets are, are brought to life. Well, that's going to improve... The relationship between the supply chain as well like the one of the most successful collection of projects i worked on was um a program of data centers in the us i only worked on them for a, about an 18 month period but the same supply chain have been working together on the same collection of projects for for the same client for about 10 years so they were all and they worked from concept to handover and then they started the next one mm -hmm. and that resulted in like complete honesty between the way the team worked together, like everyone knew each other, they were honest, they spoke the truth, everyone got paid decent hourly rates, and it completely transformed the culture of the project because everyone knew what they were doing today would have an impact at some point, so they wanted to get rid of that issue. They didn't want to bake it in and just move on. So when there was a problem, people held their hands up and said, there's a problem here, guys, we need to deal with it. And I was asked to help improve it, and it was really hard. <laughs> They said, "Oh, we need to. What, how do we improve the efficiency of these pro, this this program of data centers? Because we need to make them faster, or increase or risk of delivery deadlines." 
And it was very, very hard. The, the only thing I could find to improve was logistics, logistics digitization. The only thing they hadn't digitized and completely sorted out was the way logistics was managed on site. It was in Pat's head in Boston was the term used. But ultimately, what came out of that was that all of their risk money was hidden in logistics, <laughs> which was really interesting. So they hadn't, but they were honest. So like, oh yeah, yeah, this is where all our risk money is in case there's errors where we store it. So, but they were open and they were honest and it resulted in such an enjoyable collection of individuals to work with because everyone was so open. And I would love to see more of that in the UK is when you're not constantly kicking it over to the next Reba stage to, to get me one. It'd be great to see project delivered more often than not in that, in that way in the UK. And stage census is a really good example because when you look at industries where basically there's a lot of money to be made or there's a lot of cash and risk that the asset is dependent on. So for example, Amazon's data centers, the entire AWS is dependent on those data centers up and running and sort of working with zero downtime. And I think it's through this, this commercial element to, to the way that it's ran. It means that they really are pushing for as many efficiencies as possible. And it sort of their, their feet are held against the fire a little bit more by the, the Jeff Bezos, et cetera. And, and then you see them benefiting from uh, standardization and adopting more of a sort of manufacturing type approach. And I, I know that the big theme at the minute within construction and capital infrastructure delivery is designing for manufacturing and assembly, which is really trying to learn from some of the manufacturing developments in that you see in say car manufacturing well an interesting thread because i think there's there's two elements to it there's and this is putting my wsp hat on actually and it's also mentioned the zero playbook increased use of off-site manufacture it's like just a, f a fundamental given but also the idea of not not manuf not manufacture not dfma but a manufacturer's approach to design is is actually a slightly different thought process to oh we'll design something and then we'll put it in a factory because that's what we've been doing or trying to do for the last 10 15 years with all the failures of things like katera etc etc like oh well we'll design a thing and then we'll stick it in a factory it doesn't tend to work that well it honestly i don't think you need to to start from day one with that in your in your head and in the design team's head that you are going to manufacture this asset like it is going to be manufactured so you're thinking it from kit parts from day one and you're thinking assemblies you're thinking what parts of this can be done off-site what parts can't be done off-site and getting that instilled in the design team from uh, a concept perspective like makes total sense we're working we've got some airport projects we've got some housing projects that are jumping down in that space but it's it's such a fundamental shift in the concept of engineering it's hard because it it does totally change the way that an engineering practice works and we're driving that, but we're also an WSP is also an engineering practice. So it's like it, there's a, there's a big kind of mental shift for designers to think we are now a manufacturing industry. We are not not necessarily not a design industry, but taking a manufacturer's approach to design is different to like the the projects I've been involved with where DFMAs come up. Usually, DFMA appears once the contractor gets onboarded, and it's like, oh, we have to redesign everything. Waste, and then we have to change this concept and go back through planning because the client's been sold the, the dream of DFMA rather than it just being the part of the process of how you're going to deliver the project. Like I, that, that's the mindset that I, the mindset shift I think we need 
And there's some examples of that now with some, as mentioned, with some airport projects and housing projects where the kit of parts are like a car and you can reconfigure them. But it's a big mental shift, I think. But it's definitely a complete a fundamental string to the board of the future of the engineering industry. On the topic of other sort of prominent challenges within the sector, I want to think about the hard to obey sectors. We saw last week the, the news coming out of Maersk around them launching a, a new startup out of stealth mode called C2X, which is focused on green methanol as a means of actually decarbonizing the, the shipping industry. So for me, this is pretty cool. The scale of emissions coming out of the shipping industry is, is quite a lot. So it accounts for about a 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And it is really entirely dependent on fossil fuels. And Maersk alone are responsible for about 0.1% of human CO2 emissions. So I don't blame them for wanting to innovate to prevent them from going bust. What, what do you think about this? Is this sort of heading in the right direction? I would suggest that they're doing that because of the potential business case for them. Mm. And probably, I don't know maritime law legislation, but I'm assuming there'll be something coming through the pipeline that's going to make them more accountable. Obviously, generic ESG targets, they'll want to be pushing them. But the business case for them and the long-term business case for them to be the, be the leader of of, gr- of green, I can't really call shipping green, or greener, greener shipping, it's like will be absolutely key to the future of their business strategy. So why would they not do this? I'm sure they've got the cash to invest in it. Probably an interesting thread to pull on business case there, but they're probably doing it for multiple reasons, but one of the, one of them will be uh, long-term survivability of the company. They won't want someone else to come in as a smaller player and be like, we are now ultra-green shipping users. So there's probably that element to it as well, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it really comes down to their commercial drivers. They are a commercially driven organization and their future is dependent on them innovating and staying ahead of the curve. And when you look at some other sectors, maybe they don't necessarily have that same pressure. Other sort of hard to abate sectors like, like cement and steel. You see folks like Tata Steel, who are the UK's largest emitters by CO2 emissions. And they are very much dependent on uh, government subsidies, government grants, et cetera, to, to innovate and to change and don't seem to sort of do it off their own back. What differences do you think there are with, with the other hard to abate sectors compared to, say, the shipping example? I think steel the bit, Jesus. Being from Stockton, where, where at one point we were making something like 89% of the world's steel at some point, I think there's there's this... A logical argument to kind of keep them going. I think they recently got a 500 million pound uh, cash injection from the government. They're still losing something like 1.3 million pound a day. But the government could help in a lot of ways. I mean, the industry is still full of Chinese steel. So, like, we want to buy, people still want to buy cheaper steel. So, they will always go for the, the cheaper steel rather than the, the, the British manufactured stuff. But the British manufactured stuff is a better quality. Steel, the steel industry is a good example. We could very, very easily let it die. But the argument, for the long-term economic impact on the UK is that it'd be better not to. It kind of feels like it's an industry on life support, I think. Like, it seems pretty economically unviable, the amount of money that's having to get pumped into it. Um, 
would it be a bad thing? What's, what's the bad, bad consequences of a local, local economic collapse for all the workers? It puts the UK on a back foot from a manufacturer's perspective. We don't want to be relying on overseas steel. There's, 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 there's many angles we could put on it. But there's great examples of industries in the steel sector that are doing amazing stuff. Saab in Sweden have certified net zero steel. Like, don't want to pull that thread, but it's that it, they're zero emission steel, um, which I don't think is feasible. I, it depends on the de- definition at zero, but ultra low emission steel. I know Acceleromittal are doing the same thing with the green hydrogen electric arc furnaces in Europe. So I randomly met the managing director of Saab Steel completely like randomly and he taught me through how they produce what they call net zero steel and it, i was genuinely shocked that there was that amount of innovation happening and it was feasible like it i was genuinely like wow that is amazing but it's just not something people dig into too much and that would be amazing to see that come to the uk i don't know how we would do that but it's it's a perfectly feasible thing to, to shift these industries if we can do it and the seller emitter on the same journey as well with the green electric green arc electric green arc furnaces but ultimately where there will be a point where we stop making steel where there is no more steel to be made which i think is also an interesting concept yeah and with the steel and cement industry representing about 14 percent of global co2 emissions an increasing amount of attention is being turned to the sector to think about okay we clearly need these materials in the world that we live in how can we decarbonize them Folks like 2150 VC, a large built environment VC fund, spend a lot of their time and, and capital investing into some of these sort of decarbonization challenges. It's all very well, the sort of VCs taking an interest and in sort of pumping some money into startups and everything. But then it's another challenge of actually sort of big industry adopting them. And it's great to hear sort of green steel becoming more of a thing, but what sort of challenges do you see the sort of big industry experiencing in decarbonizing? Simple answer is scale of production. So if you look at, I've got one example of a project where the client said, I will pay for ultra low carbon concrete. Don't care the price. Don't care how much it's going to cost. We'll pay for it. We want a flagship project. The price was got, the price was sought and it was very, very expensive. Not that much more expensive, but it was more expensive. The key thing, it was going to add a year and a half to the program to procure the amount of concrete they needed from this manufacturer, and that killed it. That killed the concept because that was just an – it was just too long. Like, I, I got that, to be honest. Like, it was an extra 18 months to the program. Mm-hmm. For that particular scenario, which was quite a high – it was a high – I forget the term, but a very high-quality concrete that can – have heavy machinery and that kind of stuff but it just it wasn't possible so i think the scaling of the low carbon solutions is going to be a challenge when it comes into big projects like it's just it's probably just not going to be available or unless people are willing or they're they're pointy carroted to actually be forced to do it through legislation through things like e taxonomy and green finance and all that kind of stuff that forces their hand a little bit to make these decisions so I think the scale up, the scalability of these low carbon solutions is going to be the the grandest challenge for people to adopt it. Yeah, it, it's one that I'm seeing more and more often. I mean, you see biogas becoming more and more of a topic at the minute. So folks are in the UK and, and elsewhere growing crops in on a huge scale to then harvest and then burn to produce biogas. 
but then at the minute it's only biomethane that is is produced on a large enough scale to support commercial endeavors i mean there's various pros and cons with, with sort of growing a crop on scale to then burn it to then produce energy but i think overall within the sustainability space the decarbonized energy fuels space there is this big hurdle that we are still yet to cross which is how can we produce low carbon energy on a scale necessary to actually attract over big industry from their dependency on fossil fuels i i don't have an answer <laughs> it's a challenge it's got to be business case uh, well there's there's two interesting threads the business case and does the concept of a gdp economy fit in a a, a world where you want carbon reduction and emissions reduction because I'm still not convinced that, that they do tie well together because one of the key elements of carbon reduction is circularity. But if you say GDP is a measure of the, the success of an economy, that requires some kind of growth, which usually requires some kind of fossil fuel to fuel that growth. And this, this wants to constantly produce more and more and more and more has to stop at some point. It has well, to. Yeah, so, so by that, what you're referring to is the sort of the decoupling of GDP growth with fossil fuel consumption, right? Yeah, basically. And then basically, it, I just can't see how we can constantly push it. It's like in business, you can only push so far until there's nothing else left to drag out of the, the thing before it just gets impossible. And I, I, I think the, the economies are getting to that point where, well, what the westernized economies are getting to that point where GDP just doesn't really fit anymore for as a measure of happiness. Whereas the emerging markets, like the Africas and the Minas and the Asias, like they're going to explode in the next 25 years from an economic growth perspective. And they're, they're the markets we should be trying to support in terms of these are the strategies you need to embed to not destroy the planet, basically. Because think something like they're building a New York a month in Asia for the next 25 years. That's what's already planned. So there's, there, there's big numbers being spelled or spent overseas, whereas the UK is just not going to touch the sides. If we dissipate off the planet, something like 1% of global emissions would be gone. So we're kind of irrelevant. But we do have the expertise and the knowledge of years and years of being a world leader in engineering to support those emerging nations and making better choices now. And we are doing a good job at that through our support with feasibility studies, right? and first of a kind projects. I know that a lot of the UK engineering leaders that we know and love spend a lot of their time focused on supporting sectors, supporting countries, test out new means of decarbonizing through feasibility studies, first of a kind financing projects. Do you think that's the means to get there? Do you think that's the role that the UK can play in the global story? I think it has no choice. And I think any of the any of the established markets have to have the foot in the door of these people and these markets and supporting them and saying, here's the mistakes we made. Here's what we've learned. Here's a better way to do it. Because ultimately, we, it, we can't stop them and we shouldn't stop them because why should we stop countries go through their industrial revolution? Like, we did it. We want that life. So why can't, we can't stop anyone else doing that. It's a moral we, dilemma, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Like, how can you stop... 
we we enjoy our westernized industrial industrialized lifestyle industrial post post industrial revolution life so why why would they not want to aspire to be in the same position as us but the planet probably can't cope with it <laughs> no honesty yeah. yeah like it can't have we can't have another 80 years worth of absolute we can't be sat in 2050 2060 looking at a, a hole in the ozone layer again because someone reinvented bad deodorant that starts melting the ozone layer like we could in theory go through that in the built environment as new cities emerge and new not people don't reinvent the wheel and like that, that's a real challenge we could face in the next 20 or 30 years i think unless we support each other globally and that's what zero is about ultimately that's one of the to go back to what we started on the idea of making carbon reduction in the built environment for linear and vertical assets a global challenge that's what we tried to do because i think the uk can be quite insular in its position it's like we know the answer to everything but then when you start to look at um the MENA market and the asia market and what's being done over there you learn an amazing amount and if we pool that knowledge globally it has to improve what we're doing i i agree i agree john we've got time for for one last question Looking ahead to uh, 2035, Mark, which many of the UK targets are now being pushed towards. What does the world look like in 2035? We'll all be driving V12s because the cost of fuel will have gone through the floor. No, I would like to see a very positive vision of the future. I'm, I can be quite pessimistic. <laughs> I think I've been, I've been in the industry too long now. The UK has a huge opportunity. I think there's going to be a... There's an opportunity for a, a government shift. I don't know what that'll mean. I think the challenge of climate is the opportunity for the world to come together like it never has done before to challenge to tackle the challenge that the entire world faces. It's it can be quite scary and daunting, and it can be the entire sustainability and green community can be quite pessimistic when it starts to look at it. But I still like to believe you can have an impact as an individual. And I do think every individual in the built environment has the opportunity to shift the needle. If you work in the built environment, you have a huge amount of agency to change the world we live in and change the face of the environment in which we try to thrive. Like you can, you can make one decision and then offset your entire life's carbon footprint. So we're working on giga projects, meta projects, the stuff you're working on, on Jack is like, massive it's mega scale so you make a decision one day and you're changing the future of hundreds of thousands if not millions of tons of carbon so therefore use your agency to do some good die happy men that's it that's it but remember to watch your yoga pods of course <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you that's been good yeah such a strong message to finish on I, I i really appreciate it you've been listening to the future engineering club podcast thanks so much for joining me i really hope you enjoyed it Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.